One of the central themes of the New Testament epistles is unity. Paul especially wanted the Jews and Gentiles to be united as one body under Christ. Whether we should aim for unity in belief or in community or solidarity as members of the kingdom of God, our numerous denominations point to our failure at achieving that unity, and so are our views on the origins of the universe and of life, of species, and of humanity. Today on the Disciple Science Podcast, we'll talk about what Christians believe about when and how God created, and why we aren't more unified in our beliefs. Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a follower of Jesus. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science and studying birds and in my walk of Christian faith. I help start Disciple Science to produce short videos and a podcast and other resources to help Christians see the compatibility of faith and science and to explore nature as an avenue to encounter God in a whole new way. We believe that science and theology together can produce a fuller picture of reality and that science can inspire a strengthened walk of faith. Now let's get on with the podcast. Thanks for joining me. I'm so glad you're here with me today for our second week of exploration and the origins, the debate, and the discussion about evolution and when and how God created. Last week, we discussed how evolution created some problems for Christianity, and some of them were genuine problems in that many people walked away from their faith, or at least it caused them to question the validity of Scripture and the goodness of God and Ultimately, many people abandoned their faith, including Darwin to some degree. We know he started as a believer and ended his life as an agnostic, and at least some of his science probably played a role in that, although there were other complicating factors. But I also argued that while those are genuine problems, and I hate to see people questioning their faith, science can correct some of our misunderstandings, and I think it's possible that If evolution is the truth of how God created, then it's better to sit and wrestle with truth than it is to be at peace with what is false. Now, let's use a different example to help us understand that and just reiterate what we were addressing last week. The old debate about geocentrism versus heliocentrism helps us see how science can sometimes correct false theological beliefs and false interpretations of scripture. Now, I'm not going to always default to science. There are many cases where theology has to redirect science and say, no, I think you're overstepping your bounds there. But at least in the case of the heliocentrism debate, our old view that the earth was at the center of our solar system and that everything revolved around us was quite comfortable because that's how scripture appears to be pointing. There are many verses that hint at a geocentristic view of the authors of scripture, and it was also quite comfortable for our observations. As you walk outside, it appears that the sun is moving over our head and that the stars are moving over our head and that everything is revolving around us. So these are comfortable ideas that most people think didn't need correction, but we now know they were false. That's not the way our solar system works. It turns out the sun is at the center of our solar system. 
and the appearance of it revolving around us is caused by the Earth spinning on its axis. Hopefully we're all comfortable with these ideas. So science was able to give us a fuller picture of how the system works, how God created and designed the solar system to function. And that invited us to revisit scripture and come to a different approach, a different understanding how to make sense out of those verses. It was very uncomfortable in that we had to question our assumptions and gain a new approach to how to read scripture. But it was the truth, so it was critical that we do that. So with that same idea, we're going to approach the origins debate Now, again, I'm working on a big assumption here that evolutionary creationism is the best understanding of how God created. And we'll have a discussion at another time about why I believe that is the best approach, both scientifically and is compatible with scripture. But at least for now, we are going to try and come to a a better sense about why it's better to wrestle with the truth than it is to sit peacefully with what is ultimately false. And our goal here uh, is to not only have true beliefs, but to have a more unified church, because this topic has caused a lot of conflict within the church, and it has caused a lot of conflict within individuals. And for many people, they have ultimately left the church, or they have just abandoned science as a way of making sense out of the world. I think both of those are tragic. So a unified church is something worth striving for. If if Paul has anything to say about it, right, there's value in, in having solidarity in our uh, walk of faith because we're going to be wrestling with the world, right? We're going we're gonna to receive persecution from the world, so let's not persecute each other in the meantime. And so sometimes we attempt to create unity by defining our belief systems. And an example of that is our use of creeds. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed say this is, these are the, the foundation of what we believe. And the Apostles' Creed, of course, starts with a statement of belief as God the Creator. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, etc., etc. right? So it goes on, but it starts with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, but it doesn't talk about how God created or when God created. So we all believe that God created within the Christian circles. We just don't agree with when that took place or how God accomplished those goals. And it's unfortunate that in some circles, how, your belief about when and how God created is, is your litmus test for orthodoxy. And you don't have to look very hard to find Christians that are just dismissed as theologically liberal with a flimsy faith. If they express belief in any reading of Genesis 1 through 11, that is not a literal historical narrative. So we have now uh, six different beliefs. Um, Now, some of you might want to add a seventh or an eighth, and perhaps there could be more, but based on uh, centuries now of science and theology and philosophy, we think that there are basically six ways to believe in how life and the universe came to be. Now, not all of these are compatible with Christianity. In fact, some of them are explicitly incompatible. 
but there are six ways to believe, and I would say that three of them for sure, and there's a fourth that some people might want to wiggle into Christianity and other people are less comfortable with. So let's talk about those six approaches to how God created and try and figure out what it is that's keeping us from coming to more unity on this. Now, much of what I'm going to be talking about today comes from a really great book called Mapping the Origins Debate. It's written by Gerald Rao, and I like it, and I've used it in some of my biology classes in which we've explored the origins debate in great detail because he is not pushing for his belief. In fact, at no point in the book does he even tell you what he believes. He's just trying to help people understand why different groups of Christians and non-Christians hold their beliefs. And so it, I think it's pretty well done. And it does a good job of not only explaining the science and some of the scripture, but the philosophical and worldview assumptions that are behind certain readings of scripture. So it's really an interesting read. I'll post a link to that in the episode notes below. So the six views that, uh, that Rao lays out that we'll discuss today are uh, uh, naturalistic evolution, which is basically atheism, a deist view, which is called undirected evolution. I'm just going to list the names here, and then I'll explain them in a little bit more detail. So a deist view called undirected evolution, and then something that we could call planned evolution, where there's a purpose to evolution into life, but, but the God that created it did not intervene in any way. So there's no intervention. Then there's uh, what I would say is a more mainstream Christian view of evolutionary creation, where God somehow directs evolution. Now, exactly how that works is kind of debated, but God directs evolution. And then we have a view called progressive creationism or old earth creationism. And then we have a, a view called young earth creationism. So those six views, atheist view, a deist view, and then a view called planned evolution, and then a view called directed evolution. That's probably most in line with what people call evolutionary creationism or used to be called theistic evolution. Then we have progressive creationism, sometimes called old earth creationism. We have young earth creationism. So two of these views I think are incompatible with Orthodox Christianity. And maybe those are obvious. It's the first two views. So the atheist view is sometimes just called a naturalistic evolution, is saying that there is nothing in this world that isn't natural. And we explored this in our first video, talking about the tension between science and Christian faith. And a lot of it's just rooted in this base worldview. Either you believe that there is something outside of the physical universe, or you don't. So if you don't believe there's anything supernatural, then you have to come to the conclusion that the earth and the life that's in it and the universe and the sun and the stars and really everything that exists is either it's always existed and we have to come up with some explanation for why it's always existed or we have to say it's just a it's coming into existence at some point in time is just some blip that many uh, atheists hope that they can sometime explain at some point in the future. 
So atheism just holds that the universe is an accident and life is an accident and our existence is an accident. And many people believe that therefore that means that things like love are not real and that, um, it, you know, the, just it, it removes some of the purpose and meaning from life. Now, I've gotten some interesting pushback from some atheists when they watch our first video on uh, the intersection of evolution and creation to say, we don't think that the earth is, lacks purpose. But I would say that if there is no purpose to the whole universe, then any purpose that you try and create, it might make you feel better about your life, but it's not genuine. It's not real. If the universe lacks purpose and if the earth lacks purpose and if life lacks, lacks purpose, then I think our individual lives lack purpose. Now, we could debate that. I don't want to. That's perhaps an oversimplification, but that's an approach of atheistic, naturalistic uh, evolution. Now, there's another view that was um, quite common uh, further back in time during the uh, scientific revolution, and it seems to me less prevalent now, or I'm not, I don't encounter many people that hold this view, although I think in some circles it might be true, which is a deist view. And so if you're not figure, familiar with deism, it's the idea that there is a God, but that God is not a relational God. It's not a God that uh, interacts with us. It's not a God that wants to know us. It's just this mysterious being that kind of exists far off that doesn't really interact with the world anymore. So the deist perspective is, uh, says that, that there is a God that's responsible for the existence of the universe. So when we ask that question, why is there something rather than nothing, the atheists have to say, well, we're not sure. The deists say, oh, there's a God but it's just not the God of Christianity. It's not a God that loves us. It's not a God that wants to relate to us. Um, and therefore, it's not a God that intervenes in the world. So everything still happens on naturalistic processes, but those are just sort of naturalistic processes which are following the laws of nature put in place by God. And that God doesn't really have any interest in what I do with my life or how I live my life. And I would say that that view is not in line with Christianity, right? Of our, we, we hold that God loves us, God cares for us, God wanted to save us, God wants us to come to a fuller belief in him and trust him with our lives. That's not compatible with deism. Now, I think perhaps the most interesting of these six views, because it is the one that some people want to find compatibility with Christianity and others do not, is this idea of planned evolution. So God created, and that there is a God that created with purpose, different from the deist view, right? The deist God sort of just creates, and then he's like, all right, well, let's see what happens here. Uh, but there was, no, there was no purpose. There is no teleology. So in planned evolution, God creates with purpose. So it's similar to the deist view, where God sort of wound up the universe, but that God knew somehow all, all of what would come from that winding up. That So God knew ahead of time that the natural processes that he put in place, the, uh, the laws of physics and energy and whatnot, would result in humanity. Whereas the deist view just said God wound it up and then just kind of let it go with freedom and who knew what would come. So the planned evolution, uh, you know, it's this, it, there's a God that designed things so that um, 
humans would come about, but that that God didn't intervene, right? So that there's no uh, there's no intervention, there's no there's no miracles, and so what we see is is God that is very hands off from the world. So it's not a really a perfect fit with at least the dominant forms of Christianity where we like to think about God as sustainer and not just creator. And so this is really getting into the debate about what does it mean for God to be the sustainer and the providence of God. Uh, But this is favored by some who think that God works really exclusively through natural processes. And what we're going to find is that, at least I believe, and most of Christianity believes that God occasionally breaks those rules. Right in the story of the resurrection of Jesus, that there are no natural processes that can explain how Jesus could come back to life. And so for those reasons that the planned evolution is um, saying that God doesn't intervene, it's probably not compatible with most definitions of Christianity, but there are some that want to um, squeeze that one in as well. The fourth view is what Rao calls directed evolution, and I think this is most closely aligned with what many people call evolutionary creationism, or what was previously called theistic evolution. Uh, There's been kind of a rebranding of this approach. Theistic evolution was kind of the dominant terminology for a while, but it emphasizes the evolution, right? It's like a theistic version of evolution. And recently people have said, look, we we believe in creation too. We are creationists. We believe that God created and that God used the processes that God put in place to create things. So we want to be creationists too. And so they said evolutionary creationism is a a better terminology uh, that gives us a better sense of, of what we're arguing for. So directed evolution or evolutionary creationism in which God works through natural processes to accomplish his goals of creating uh, uh, all of life and humans, right? So most people that are evolutionary creationists would be comfortable with the idea that humans are descendants of a shared ancestor with all other forms of life. Now, what's different between uh, evolutionary creationists and the other two forms of creationists that we're going to talk about, old earth creationists and young earth creationists, is how God acts, If you believe that God is acting via what we would call miracles or God is intervening in a way so that we can say there is no scientific explanation for what just happened there, then you probably would say uh, fall in line with old earth creationists and young earth creationists. An evolutionary creationist would say, yeah, I believe that God does that. I believe that God performs miracles. I believe that God resurrected Jesus from the dead. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe, you know, that 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 God does perform miracles. I believe that Jesus healed people, all those things. We're not questioning whether miracles take place. What we're questioning is if God used miracles in the process of creating life. Uh, And if God used miracles in the process of developing these new forms of life, all the different species that we see on the planet. So there are many people like me, that are very comfortable with the idea that God primarily works through natural causes and that miracles are an exception. Miracles are unusual and that God uses miracles to put his power on display. And I've actually always wondered, you know, why would God use miracles to create life if nobody was there to witness that miracle? Uh, 
you know, what's the purpose in intervening in your own system to reveal your power if nobody can sense that power, nobody can see that outpouring of your, uh, of your presence? I probably shouldn't even open up that can of worms, but this is a different approach, right? So directed evolution, evolutionary creation, and believe that God is there and present and sustaining and directing things, but it's not in ways that uh, are beyond scientific explanation. I believe that God is working through secondary causes to accomplish his goals. The last two uh, types of creationism, old earth creationism, uh, that tef- that that name gives us a very clear sense of what they believe. They're very much on board with the universe being billions of years old and the earth being billions of years old. Um, And so they're not questioning the age of the earth or the story of how the earth has changed over time, but they do believe that God is using miracles to bring life about and that God created the different forms of life uniquely. So not all life forms on the earth have shared ancestry. And so that's an old earth creationist view. And then we have the young earth creationist view. And the young earth creationist view uh, is what would have been held by most people 500 years ago in the Judeo-Christian world. So we can that is true that it was the dominant view for a long time. But people didn't have any reason to question that. There was no data pointing otherwise and it was the uh, you know the uh, a simple approach to reading scripture, and so this was the dominant view. But it's it's not necessarily the dominant view anymore. And so young earth creationism looks at the evidence that points to an old earth and an old universe, and says we are misunderstanding that evidence, and that we have to use a lens of scripture. And they think that the scripture is a is full of scientific information and that we can use scripture to to teach science and understand how the world operates. And therefore, they say we're going to use the lens of scripture to reinterpret the evidence that the earth is very ancient. And now almost all of them would agree that there is evidence to believe that the earth and the universe is very ancient. To deny that would really be a leap of of, of faith. Uh, so almost all of them would agree that there is reason to believe that the earth is ancient, but they just think that, that those um, the assumptions that those conclusions are based on are, are fundamentally flawed. Okay, so those are our six views. We've got our naturalistic evolution, our atheistic view. We've got our deist view of undirected evolution. We've got our planned evolution view where there's purpose, but there's no intervention. That's the one that uh, some people want that to be compatible with Christianity and others don't. Then we've got our evolutionary creationist view. We've got our progressive creationist view or old earth creationist. And then we've got our young earth creationist view. All right, so six different views. Why do we have so many different views? Why don't we have unity on this topic? Well, there are a lot of issues that we just don't see eye to eye on, and it's more than just how to read scripture. So one of that is one of the big issues, though. How should we understand the Bible? And what does it mean for scripture to be inspired by God? Does that mean that God corrected the misunderstandings of the authors of Scripture? Did it mean that he whispered in their ear and made sure that they understood the story, the scientific story of how these processes came about? 
Is all of the Bible scientifically accurate? This is a view called concordism, which says that the information in Scripture perfectly fits with what science can teach. Now, I am not on board with that view, but there are many people that are, and I don't want to get into that today. That's a, that's a big topic that needs more detail. Uh, but also just how to interpret different sections of Scripture, and, and do we understand the genre of Scripture that Genesis you know, 1 through 11 is written in? Again, many people believe it's just simple historical narrative. It's just as if you were there watching it. That's what it would have looked like. And many other people believe that Genesis 1 especially is a different genre of literature and that maybe Genesis 2 through 11 is also a different genre of literature. And then starting in Genesis 12, we see sort of a switch. Now, this is complex. Nobody thinks that everything in Scripture should be taken literally. Some people might think they think that, but they don't actually think that. Aside from much of it being poetic, Scripture describes God as light and as rock and as water and as a mother hen, and none of those are literally true. In fact, we don't believe that God has a physical form. God the Father is somehow a, a eternal consciousness or spiritual being. So those descriptions that we see in, in Scripture are not literally true. So as Scott McKnight wisely says in his book, The Blue Parakeet, no one takes all of Scripture literally. The tricky part is knowing what parts to take literally. And as we approach the account of creation and the first 11 chapters of Genesis, some people think that the genre should be taken literally, and other people think that the genre is written as more of a theological history or an allegorical history where it's written to teach us what it means more than exactly what happened. Okay, so we have debates about how to read scripture overall. We have debates about what genre of literature these first 11 chapters are written in. We have debates about how God acts in the world. I alluded to this earlier that some people believe that God primarily accomplishes his goals through divine intervention, through miracles. So he puts his power on display and it is out there. And other people, and I would say I'm in this boat, would say that I'm very comfortable with the idea that God uses miracles to accomplish goals. But I think that God's primary method of working is through natural processes. And what we're going to see is that that is very compatible with Scripture. We see Scripture all the time referring to God being present in processes that we can understand with scientific explanations. So the causation provided by explanations in science is not different from the causation of God being present and active and upholding those things together. So how does God act in the world? We disagree over that. We disagree over how to interpret scientific data and information. Right? Should science influence our understanding of Scripture, or according to some of the young earth creationist groups and some of the old earth creationist groups, should, should Scripture help us reinterpret science? And this is essentially asking, is the Bible full of accurate scientific information? Did God correct the scientific misunderstandings of the author? Is the Bible a text of science? And there's big disagreements about that. It's a little bit discouraging to hear me go on and on about all these topics that we are not eye to eye on. But I just want to leave you with 
uh, a note of encouragement and a reason for optimism in the future. I think that we will have unity on this, or at least more unity on this in the future. I don't know how distant in the future, maybe 50 years, maybe 100 years. And the reason I'm optimistic is because of the story of what we went through uh, with Copernicus and Galileo. We went through centuries of disagreement about how to interpret the scripture and how to interpret the science. But there was truth out there, right? Either the earth was the center of the universe or the sun was at the center. Or sorry, not the universe. Either the earth was the center of, well, the universe or the sun was at the center of our solar system. Those can't both be true. And eventually the scientific data pointed us in the direction of truth the sun is in the center of our solar system and we revolve around it. We've all made peace with that and it's no longer a topic for debate. And I think there's a lot of overlap here with the origins debate in that either God created using miracles recently or distantly or God created using natural processes and evolutionary creationism is the correct view. Those can't both be true. I don't think they can both be true. And so I think with time, the evidence will continue to accumulate and point in the right direction of one of these models being the correct model. And I do believe that 100 years in the future, hopefully it won't take that long, maybe 50 years in the future, hey, maybe 10 years in the future, wouldn't that be wonderful? We would stop debating this topic and we would all come to peace with what we understand to be is the true story of how God acts. It would reshape how we read scripture. And that would be a good thing because it's better to wrestle with the truth than to sit comfortably in what is false. So unity will come not only from our uh, clear scientific understandings, but I also think that unity will come from our Christian calling to live out the fruit of the Spirit through uh, patience and peace and love and kindness and goodness and, and self-control by listening to each other, right? The, those of us that are scientists, we need to listen to those that have, that are, have the Young Earth creationists. We want to understand what it is that they feel will be lost if they see Scripture a different way. And in the same way, the Young Earth creationists need to listen to those of us in the sciences and to the theologians that see scripture differently from how they do to try and understand why we see it differently. And I think that if we are good listeners and we approach this with humility, that we will come to a point of unified truth and uh, a clear understanding of who God is, how God acts, what it means for scripture to be an inspired revelation of God and how to unify faith and science. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. Disciple Science is a crowdfunded nonprofit that is exploring the intersection of faith and science. We believe that scientific understandings can inspire a strengthened, deepened Christian faith. And we're hard at work on more videos. There are two that are under production. And we want all these resources, the videos and the podcast and the, the study small group notes that we're working on but haven't released yet will be a valuable resource to help you see nature as a valuable contribution to your journey of faith and your walk with Jesus. And we want all these resources to be available for free 
so that everybody can use them. We don't want there to be money to uh, prevent people access to our videos or podcasts or anything, which is why we're asking for your support. We are dependent on the generous donations of our listeners and viewers to make Disciple Science happen. So if you want to become one of those people, if you want to support Disciple Science, you can do so by going to the DiscipleScience.com website and clicking on the support button in the upper right-hand corner. While you're there, please explore the website, check out the latest videos, see what's coming next, sign up for the newsletter, dig into the past episodes of the podcast, and send us feedback about what you want to hear more about in the future. We would also appreciate your help by rating and sharing our videos and podcasts, telling your friends about Disciple Science, and having conversations about the intersection of science and faith. I want to thank a few of our donors that have been so instrumental in supporting Disciple Science in these early stages. Christine Johnson, Susie Wolfer, Jason Heese, Dallas Fontenot, Curtis and Margot Eaton, Bo and Robin Anjami, Nate and Jill Carey, and my parents, James and Barbara Gentry. Thanks to everybody for your support. It is so encouraging and it means so much to us that you're willing to send in a few bucks and help make this podcast happen. I want to wrap up by also thanking Caleb Davis for making the magic that produced this episode and composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again next week.